It doesn't always take a bunch of time, but when you're new, you really need to be able to carve out at least 10 hours a week to give to your business to learn how to do it and then to actually start doing it. Eventually, it's more passive where you're just reviewing some reports. You ha- if you're going to do it actively, you have to be willing to maybe give up Netflix, maybe give up something else you're doing that's not building a business in order to take care of your financial future. If someone's like, I just literally don't have time, then it's really the only path to go would be to do it passively uh, because it does take time and there's a learning curve. So if someone who wants to do, who's brand new and they're going to do it actively and they, they haven't been trained, most likely they're, just, it's so easy to make five and six figure errors. On today's episode, I interview Janet and Stacy about real estate investing. It's a really great episode. If you've ever been interested in investing yourself or uh, thought about passively investing through another investor, uh, I'm, I've been curious about this topic, so I got to ask a lot of my own questions on it. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, we did have a bunch of technical issues on the uh, at the beginning, and so we ended up recording it over Zoom. So there will be some audio uh, differences than, than usual, and I hope that that's um, I thank you for your understanding with that. And at the end of the um, episode, uh, Jen shares uh, and Stacy share some of their mindset behind some of the challenges that they've had to overcome. And I found it was really encouraging and cool, totally worth listening to um, and uh, and hearing their stories as they uh, describe sort of the nuts and bolts and the ins and outs of uh, real estate investing. So without further ado, Enjoy. Welcome to Building Bigfoot. Today, I am excited to introduce Jen and Stacy. So they are uh, real estate investors. They've actually written the book on real estate investing and specifically in multifamily. And it's you may have yourself been intrigued about real estate investing. Maybe you've thought, okay, how do I get into it? Or you know, maybe I've generated uh, a certain amount of money and I've got this sitting on the side. What would be the smartest way to invest this? And so this will be a really fascinating conversation. But also we're going to dive into uh, Jen and Stacey's story a little bit. How did they get started? What are they doing today? And uh, and their background. So without further ado, uh, Jen and Stacey, why don't you introduce yourselves? And uh, yeah, just let us know. Uh, who are you? Where'd you come from? And uh, what are you doing? You can start. You go. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll start. Um, so... And this is Stacy. My journey started in 2003, so 20 years ago. And I went to a Tony Robbins event. And um, the biggest thing I got out of that is that I, I was not on the right. I wasn't on the right path. I was not on the path that I was meant for. And at the time, I was just climbing the corporate ladder. So I got my CPA license, and um, you know, I was a controller for a public company. I was just climbing, climbing, climbing. And uh, then I got that message. I was like, shoot. So I was kind of in search of like, what is what is my my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? And that led me to real estate investing through a variety of different things. And the first time I heard someone speaking about it, it just, to me, it made, it was so logical. It was like, she was giving the example of a, a four unit property. We call that a quad. And she's like, yeah, you have four rents coming in. You pay one mortgage and one set of property taxes. And for whatever reason, my debits and credits brain was like, yes, I like that. I can understand that. I'm doing that. And that was, that was kind of the start. That was the start for me. For me, I started in 2002. My brother came over to my house. And at the time, I had been working in corporate America for years, just also climbing that corporate ladder. And, um, you know, I, I really just wanted to earn more money, earn more money, like most people do. And my brother had come over and asked me to go to the store with him. And we ended up driving around for six hours. And he kept telling me, oh, we're just going to go find some fixer upper properties and we're going to flip them. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I got introduced to the world of 
flipping for profits back in 2002. And that's how I got started. And I did it as a side hustle while working in corporate America. So uh, trying to build that dream on the side. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I, I'm, you know, I used to work in construction back in about 2004. Uh, and so many years ago, and uh, sort of the same time, you you both were just kind of getting into real estate investing or that world. And it, it is a it is a really interesting thing. I mean, obviously, uh, real estate itself is a massive industry. But then if you look at the size of the value of uh, real estate, as far as uh, the economic impact on the world, I saw a statistic and it showed this is in the UK, I think it was um, of all the people who've generated significant wealth in the UK, 80% of it came from real estate. And uh, it, it's really a, a pretty interesting engine. And I mean, how do you get into, or how did you both get into, you kind of got the spark, you thought, man, this is, this is interesting. Um, I wanna learn more or get more involved. How did then you move into actually becoming an investor in real estate? Well, for, for me and my brother and I, we just, we found a property that day. We ended up making an offer. We did a flip. And that first flip was horrifying for me because it was in California. And, um, you know, we did a lot of do it yourself and it really have a system. I just, um, I've always been that fire ready aim person. So we fought, we fired and, and then we went for it. And then just to find out we were not on the right track. But uh, after about seven months, we made a total of like $1,500 in profit, which was not what we set out to do. We obviously set out to make at least five figures on that one, but it didn't work out. So I had to kind of retract and figure out what's that system look like. So I realized over the years of flipping and wholesaling that it just became another job. And what I really wanted was not to have a job. <laughs> I worked myself into a new job and then effectively had two jobs. So I really wanted to figure out how do I buy them and hold them? so that I can have cash flow coming in and I don't have to keep starting over on a new property each month or each quarter. Yeah, that makes sense. When I got started, so the first thing I did is I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which for almost all real estate investors that you'll hear that's part of the part of the story. It really opens up your eyes to pa the passive cash flow. That was the first time I'd ever heard of that. Um, and I ended up joining some investor clubs just to start getting the lay of the land. Like, what is this business? And let me learn it. And I ended up finding like an education company. And so I spent a lot of money on my education, which was great in that I was very excited and inspired to go take action. And I was very motivated. Uh, the challenge was the quality of the education was not very good. It was like they, they taught eight different strategies, like a little bit about eight different strategies, which did not set anyone up for success because you really have to, when you're starting, you really need to pick a strategy and then go deep because that's where the learnings are. You don't really, really learn it until you're doing it. Like you need the education so that you know how to do it, but then doing it allows you to get further and further into it. And uh, my <laughs> education was just, it was bad. So I had, I hit my head on every low hanging branch there was. It took a lot of it took a lot of beatings in my early my early years, uh, but you know that's what it took for me. And I I learned and just like with Jen created systems that I could then replicate and follow, and then eventually just learn to mitigate as much risk as possible. I mean, there's always going to be some level of risk, but I started mitigating as much as possible so that I was taking a small risk for a large gain, asymmetrical, asymmetrical risk. Yeah, but anyway, that's where I started. So how did you do that? How did you, you mitigate some of that risk? So for example, when you, all of the investing that we do, we do remotely. 
And so wherever our physical bodies are, our properties are somewhere else. So one of the things that we do a lot, we don't do it so much right now based on supply chain issues, but in our career, we've done a lot of rehab. So if we're buying a multifamily, we're usually buying it low, fixing it up, like doing a total renovation and then refinancing and renting it out. That renovation part, that was the part that really caused the most (laughs) angst. Actually, it all caused angst, but I'll give you an example. That's a good example. So, you know, I'm here. My contractor's in, let's say, Indianapolis. I'm in Florida right now. Contractor's in Indianapolis. And he sends pictures saying, okay, these three things that we had agreed to are done. There's, you know, six other things, but these three are done. I'm ready for a draw. And when I was new, I was like, okay. And I would wire the funds. What I came to learn is that you can make pictures look like almost anything. So for example, if someone wants to make it look like they've installed the air conditioning system in the house, they could take a picture of the AC unit, the condenser and the the ductwork. But what you really can't tell us, is it actually installed? And so one of the things that we came to realize is that we need to have some kind of third-party verification of that the work was done. So like that's an example of a system. So now anytime our contractor says, okay, these three things are... Because usually the draws are $10,000 or more. So it's not small money. Um, We'll contact our home inspector, totally independent of the contractor, have them go take a look. We'll pay them a hundred bucks. You know, it takes them 15 minutes. They'll go there, they'll review the work and make sure it was done and done correctly. And then they'll give us the report. Either, yes, it's good or it's not good or somewhere in between. And then we tell the contractor, this is the report we got. So we're not releasing the draw until you know the agreed upon thing. That's one example. We have lots of examples, but every single thing along the way, we've created some kind of system like that, yeah. verification so that we we can stay safe. But that's, I, I can't even, I can't even, Think of how much money I lost in the beginning from contractor stuff, like just not realizing we call, how to verify. We call that the dumb tax. Yeah, it was the dumb tax. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't know, but you went for it and yeah. then you found out, right? Um, <laughs> I think for Stacey and I, we both had two, we didn't know each other back then. We didn't meet until 2015. So we had these independent paths that we took until we kind of intersected. And I had similar struggles. I, I had those similar struggles where I was paying a lot of dumb tax and I felt alone. So that feeling of being alone when you're trying something new, like we're literally independently not knowing each other, starting a business. And she had actually left her job. She was that crazy. I still had my job. So I'm ultimately starting a new business while having my job, which I loved, by the way. I, it's not that I didn't love it, but but it was. It was like, it wasn't a nine to five. It was more like a five to nine. And it was from five in the morning until about nine o'clock at night. And it was a grind. And I was motivated and I liked it. But at the same time, I couldn't see myself doing that forever. And real estate to me was the answer. But I had a lot of peers when I was working in corporate America, the same thing. They were working from five to nine. And we all got bonuses like every April or sometimes in October, also depending on how well we did. And and then I started to notice that those bonuses needed to be put to work and something clicked for me. And I realized, oh, this side hustle, I can actually implement and help people that are too busy, but have the money. And they definitely don't have the stomach to do this thing, paying dumb tax. And then just refining that process until the, the dumb tax was gone. Because, you know, if you make a mistake once, it's, that's something. <laughs> if you make it twice, that's, wow, a whole other thing. So, you know, we, we literally just these independent paths, building a business from scratch and not really knowing what to do. I was alone and felt like it would be cool one day if we could build a community where people that are trying to do this 
had people around them that they could ask questions or, hey, have you ever done this? And just minimize the dumb text. This makes a lot of sense because it's, you know, real estate in, in general can be kind of a lonely journey to be in, right? Business yes. can be kind of lonely. And yes. if you can, uh, if you can connect people and you say, you know, I saw a guy post something on uh, Facebook the other day and I, I laughed. He said, I often feel like a zebra in a crowd of horses. And uh, he was off to mm -hmm. this, this um, conference and he's like, I'm looking forward to meeting other zebras. And it's like sometimes that we feel that way, right? We're like, we're zebras. And uh, we're we're looking for, okay, who's who's like-minded? Who, who, who's a little bit crazy? Who's taking these crazy risks? Who's, you know, experienced some of the same challenges? You can laugh about it because it's, you know, you've been there, right? Um, but then you can also learn from each other and you can avoid a lot of those mistakes and uh, and not have to pay that uh, that tax. <laughs> Which is, you know, we all do, right? We Every single person that... Um, goes through the entrepreneurial journey is is facing things where you're like oh that was expensive i learned yeah. that one you know <laughs> and uh hopefully i don't have to do that again uh <laughs> you know even i just recently did a, a renovation in my home and I, i've often thought about some of the things that i went through and thought okay you know i'll do that different again next time just because it's the same thing you just assume when you hire a contractor they're going to do some of the um you know quality control or you know because you're paying them to do it and uh but you you discover afterwards that it's really up to it, it in this case it's up to me right they're going to work to the standard that i set and it's probably similar in real estate investing when you're so why don't you you, you uh take us through the uh sort of like higher level overview like for anybody who's thinking about okay this is interesting i'm learning about it um what what would be the nuts and bolts of real estate investing what's the uh what are the returns what like Give give us a real quick overview for somebody just thinking about it, just learning about it. So there's there's really like if you we can categorize it into two like two groups. One would be active investors, meaning you're the one doing it, and then passive investors, which means you're just putting your money into deals. So I'll start with the act because they're they're very different. When you're the active investor, the first thing you have to do is just figure out like what is your strategy? What are you trying to accomplish? Because in real estate investing, there's you know quick cash things which aren't that quick, but quick cash. Um, and then there's long-term buy and holds. And then what kind of buy and holds? Or do you like self-storage? So Jen and I have done all of it. And we, for many years, we did lots of fix and flips and, and multifamily. And now we, I don't feel like the market is the right time to do flips right now uh, with the interest rates. But with multifamily, that's more of a long-term play. So, you know, someone would need to know, well, gosh, where do I want to start? There's two to four unit properties, which is residential, kind of a more of a simple place to start. Or there's apartment buildings, which is anything that's five or more units. We tend to focus on the up to 35 unit is our sweet spot. We do bigger ones, but that's that's the part that we like. Uh, so the first step is just identifying like where do you want to start, and then you would do research and select a market. Start reaching out to realtors and brokers to get leads and analyze them, make offers, close, and then have property management manage the properties. I mean, that is a very bullet. <laughs> That's a very high level for doing the active investing. When you're doing passive investing, so because some people that we work with are like, I absolutely want to do that. Because um, that's just like they're entrepreneurs and they want to do the real estate. Like they're into it. Like I was, like Jen was. Uh, but then there's also the busy professional that's like, that all sounds great, but I absolutely do not want to spend any extra time because you do have to carve out time to do it. 
I don't want to spend all that extra time. I, I just don't have it, but I have capital sitting there doing nothing. And I know real estate is the way, because like you said, 80% of people who are millionaires made it through real estate. Most people know that or have heard that statistic before. So it's not like it's a hard sell. They're just, they don't have time. They want to do real estate. They don't know how. So Jen and I, when we do our deals, particularly our larger deals, we will bring on passive investors who just say, here's my money, go make it work. And so we're buying, usually buying, like our most recent one was a 96 unit apartment building. It was already cash flowing. There was already tenants. It was full, but there was a lot of opportunity to increase the, the revenue and decrease the expenses to make it more profitable. And so our investors are, we're all invested in it together, but we do all the work and they are completely passive. They're not responsible for anything. They're not deciding on operational things. We're the ones doing that. Um, so that's the passive side. Returns, I mean, it's, it just depends on the, the strategy or the type of building, but generally anywhere from like 7% cash on turn, uh, cash on cash return on a, like a regular basis up to maybe 10. But when you do a project where in five years, you're going to sell it, which is probably the most common strategy with these larger deals, you increase the revenue, which increases the value. And then in five years, you sell it so that you can uh, collect all of the profit that you had created in the value. So usually by the time you get to that, it's more like a 11 to 12% average return over the five years. That's, yeah, I feel like that's probably similar. Most deals are somewhere in that range. Yeah. <clears throat> and not that this is typical, but in the 96 unit for every $100,000 that was invested by year five, it comes back, I think, at like 190, 190,000. Yeah. 190, so you'd get the 100 back plus 90,000 more. At the plus along that five year, you're getting the um, the distributions that are coming out from cash flow. So it, it is a very lucrative opportunity for for anybody that doesn't have time but needs to put their money somewhere. But it, it does have liquid capital that can be at play for five to seven years. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, because it's not it's not accessible once you're going to deal. The money is in the deal. So yeah, that's no, a distinction. That 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 makes sense, and I, I feel like that's a good um, that's a really good solid return. Uh, I think for anybody, like if you can have that kind of consistency, then what does financing look like for uh, real estate investing? Are you? <laughs> right now, it's like, oh, that's a great question. It is a very good question. It's funny because up until you know last year when interest rates started increasing, you know, because we, we do because we teach both levels of of people, we continue to do the two to four units like here and there. Not because it makes sense for our time, but just to stay relevant in the market and understand like, well, what are our, what our students, like our, what our students are doing. And then for our apartment buildings, our two to four unit properties, those smaller ones used to be like pretty profitable on a per door basis, like actually more profitable per door than the apartment buildings. But the apartment buildings, you had skip, they were uh, what is it economies, economies of scale. So you have a lot more into one roof. So from that standpoint, that is more efficient. But, you know, we can make... $250 to $300 a door on the smaller multis. But when the interest rate started going up, it just, it really squeezed those and made it harder, harder for us to justify spending our time on those, you know, frankly. Um, and with the commercial stuff, it, it makes it a lot harder for deals to pencil. So what Jen and I did, the thing is we've been in real estate for 20 years. So we have been through the cycles and we, we understand like, do not hold on to how things have been for more than a nanosecond just be the water, like be flexible and be ready to make a move. So as soon as that started happening, we started shifting our sites to looking for 
seller finance deals. It's not that we won't do a, a deal with bank financing. It's just it's hard with the higher interest rates to make the numbers work. So we have focused more on doing seller finance deals. And so since then, that was the 96 unit was a seller finance deal. We're under contract right now on a 13 unit, just a small apartment building, seller financing. Uh, and the reason, and I don't know how much people know about seller financing. The reason you would do that is the seller is either owns the property outright or they have a mortgage on it with a low interest rate because they bought it <laughs> when the interest rates were low. So they can offer us both of those deals are 5%, 5% interest rate. Well, we would get like seven plus at a bank. So at 5%, the numbers can work. At 7%, it, it, there's just not enough cash flow coming in to manage the debt service and have a, a reasonable cushion to feel comfortable. So the interest rates really, it's been kind of fun because seller financing is, it's creative financing. It's creative real estate. And it's actually really fun. And it's been a long time since it's made any sense to play in that world. So we have been expecting the interest rate thing to start changing. We thought it was going to happen back in, in 2019. Yeah, we were in 2018. We started selling all of our flips or wrapping up all of our flips and moving into multifamily, knowing the interest rate raise is coming. And then we were like, well, where is it? And then COVID hit. And then they just infused a bunch of cash into the environment. I was like, oh, what is, what is the economy going to change? To us doing the, you know, our long-term strategy. So we've been waiting. We've been waiting for this right now. It's a pain in the butt on one hand because the bank financing doesn't work very well, but not as many people know how to do the seller financing. So it gives us a bit of a competitive edge to figure out how to make deals work. Yeah. We can make deals work that some people can't because they just don't, they don't have the knowledge. So that's yeah, how, that's how we've pivoted during this time. Yeah. And it's, it's critical to do, to make that pivot too, because, you know, well, the reason why in 2019 we were looking at, okay, it, the interest rates have to go up at some point. And it was even before COVID happened, but actually it was in December of 2019 when I thought I, I'm pretty sure we had COVID then, but we didn't know it was a thing. But, you know, in 2008, they, there was their resolution was to print money, right? So it went to 4 trillion. Then, then in 2020, when COVID hit, they, they printed money again and it went up to 8 trillion. So it's like the writing's on the wall that something's going to happen. And, and now, Inflation is so far run away that they can't print money more. They, I mean, they can't print more money to, to solve this. So you really have to go to your toolbox and figure out different strategies. Um, but that's what being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur is all about. 100%. Yeah. I was listening to uh, a talk with Tim Grover and uh, Tim Grover was the uh, uh, trainer for Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. Uh, he, he worked in Michael Jordan for 15 years. So he he was a long time. He talked about success. He said, success is like a combination lock. He's like the first two numbers you got figured out. The third number is well-worn, but it's like, as soon as you figure it out, you crack open that lock, the combination changes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's and, that's, true. <laughs> and it's just like, it's, that's the entrepreneurial journey. Right. And, Absolutely. uh, yeah, so you, you you figure out, okay, what's happening right now? And it's funny because you're saying like 2019, you thought the interest rates are going to rise. I did too, but I thought it was going to rise by like a percentage or two. And uh, then, of course, what happened with uh, 2021, like you said, the writing was on the wall. Um, I, I I was so confused by like sort of the, the economic standpoint of what was happening. To me, it, it seemed like we had a uh, a supply issue because... We like everything was locked down. Uh, you know, shipping was was restricted. We were having manufacturing shortages everywhere. There was that uh, the the 
chip shortage. So it just seemed like consumer demand was outstripping supply. And I thought, okay, at some point that's going to self-adjust and self-correct itself. But the amount of, of money that was put into the economy uh, internationally, like the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, all of the same the countries, they all followed the exact same playbook. They all did the exact same thing. And so just the amount of money that's in the economy is just insane. And so um, it, it was bound to happen. But then we've kind of entered another scenario, which I think is interesting, is there's not enough real estate for um, for people. It, it, like yeah. the populations are growing. Yeah. The demand is, is uh, again, outstripping supply. And I know like in Canada, we have a significant problem. And I know in the US, it's probably the same thing where we are not building, we're not greenlighting enough projects to meet the demand. Uh, we have as, I think, uh, 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 you have to, uh, this will have to get double checked, but I, I think we have as many or close to as many residential units as we had in the 1990s. But our population is about, uh, it's like 20% bigger than it was then. So oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. we have a we have a problem. Um, yeah. So so come along um, rental units, right? Because because rental uh, the the market for rental uh, has gone uh, through the roof, and so yeah. What what do you see happening there? And uh, yeah, and how how do you see that impacting your business? Oh my goodness! Wow, I feel like that's a softball question. <laughs> so. Yeah, ultimately, what, what has happened is in 2008, when the U.S. economy crashed based on housing, it was like we had 3 million, 3 million in inventory. And today it's like less than 800,000. So it's the inverse problem. So there's, there's not a lot of single family homes or housing for people. And at the same time, with interest rates, I mean, they have literally jacked up the interest rates 1,110% in a two year period. So the affordability, it's it literally people, it's from 1989 is where people's gross median income, median income is to afford a home. So they, even if they could afford the homes right now, the interest rate is so high, they're not going to be able to afford those payments. And the price on homes hasn't come down enough yet. So what that means is there's a lot of opportunity for rentals and the supply chain issues have sort of ceased. And there's a lot of these new projects coming on that you'll see called build to rent here in the States, where they are literally taking these long-term construction materials that are just, they will weather any storm, any, any weather. They're just putting it out there and they're building, they have a hundred year life cycle where, you know, sticks and bricks, it, it lasts you maybe 50 years and you got to do a lot of renovation. So there are a lot of projects out there right now that are build to rent. And we have a lot of friends in our other networks that are doing those things, looking to address the affordable housing issue and the housing shortage. So there's that's a big opportunity. Another big opportunity that we're seeing here is like RV parks, mobile home parks, things that are just like top up quick. They have those little container houses, buy some land and, and put something on it quick. So people have been getting creative here in the States. And what's also happening is that there's a lot of properties that because of everything that's happened in the economy and how many times they printed money and we're kind of out of room now, it's like your back's against the wall and you're on ground zero facing this, this entire process of what are we going to do? This financial, we financially engineered ourselves into a situation where there's not enough inventory. The cost of money is too high. People have to get creative. And only the ones that have the skill to do seller financing and find those things are going to be able to succeed. But there are, there are some markets in the United States where it's a really good market. The job growth is good. The population is either steady or growing. Um, the, the rents have had year-over-year growth. But 
the folks that own those apartment buildings or those those multifamily buildings, they got into a financial situation with using a bridge loan. So they, they literally got in there with uh, an adjustable rate that had a rate cap that expired in three years. So let's just say it's 2021. They got into this loan for three and a half percent. Every time the Fed hiked the rate, it, it hiked the rate on their loan. Right. So, and then, but there's a cap at six and a half percent. That cap expires after three years. So, when that third year hits, it's like you don't have a rate cap anymore. And this is what the new rates are. And they're going to be hurting because it's 7.26% is what one of our students just reported the other day that they're seeing for, for, uh, for loans. And if they're six and a half percent and it goes to 7.25 or 7.5, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal because now you're cash flow negative. And then what do you do? Well, what we see is a huge foreclosure wall coming. There's a huge foreclosure wall coming, which is nothing but opportunity for us to step in, find out well, where are these distressed sellers? Where are these distressed properties? And try and figure out creatively how we can get through this. And then that gives a lot more opportunity for, for us to come in and, and take over properties or acquire properties using different methods. That's interesting. Yeah. So there, the variable rates is pretty common uh, in Canada as well. And that's where we started to see now more and more um, some of the, the the properties that are coming on the market, they're variable rate holders. And they are, uh, I had a buddy, uh, he just, uh, he had to exit because of that. And he was just saying, it's like, well, I won't say what he said on the podcast, but he, he was, it was, it was painful. Right. And uh, it was just, it was hemorrhaging money. And so he had to move quickly. But the, uh, the, the problem in, in, Canada is that uh, it doesn't matter what mortgage you have, it renews after five years. Oh, yeah. Okay. Are here. So, wow. so Canada is, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's in a pickle because mm-hmm. in, in a few years, this is going to be, uh, every single home is going to be refinanced. Every single property. Yeah. Wow. Right. And so five years, is, is it like, all at the same time is that what you're saying yeah, it's it's after their five-year term okay, so, so it'll good. still be it'll be going over different times and I, and I know that the uh the you know central bank here is going to be watching that closely and adjusting based on that but in the u.s it's a lot better position because people are able to hold their rate obviously unless they're doing bridge financing but they can hold it for the the full term um so what they've done here now in the short run uh, in the interim is they've made it legal for people to only pay their actually pay less i believe than their uh than their interest than their their amortized amount and uh but that's just extending that yeah it's it's not a it's not a long-term strategy it's a short-term um uh, relief but so but what you're saying is you're seeing that there's going to be a lot of availability coming on the market for investors in the near term where there's going to be a lot of really good opportunity in strong markets. Yes. And that's the key is that it's all they're in strong markets. Yeah. You know, and the the thing is markets that are really solid. Most of our investments are in the Midwest. Like we're more of invest in slow and steady wins the race instead of going to like hot markets. And part of it is because of these big swings. Like you make a lot, but if you don't time it right, you can lose millions of dollars. And, you know, we're not, we've we've learned not to be so much in the business of (laughs) losing millions of dollars. but in those markets that were super hot, like Florida, Texas, Arizona, the only way you could get a deal there, but lots of people want to invest there, 
The only way you can get a deal there because they were, there's bidding wars, even on a hundred and five hundred unit properties, bidding wars is you would have to take the variable, the floating rate debt. You'd have to take the bridge financing at three and a half percent because doing it at five percent or whatever the fixed rate was at that time, it wouldn't pencil because the market was so hot and it was so competitive that the only way to make the deal work was to take that low, the lower interest. And everybody that is in that situation is most likely going to be flipped upside down. There's going to be negative cash flow. And it's not like you're talking about two or $300 a month. You know, most people could cover that. It's tens of thousands of dollars a month upside down. And, the, and that's even if they did everything right. They operated it perfectly because if their interest rate changes and you're talking about 20, 30, 40, $40 million, even a quarter percent makes a really big difference in your monthly payment. So I just, I don't think that those operators are going to get people putting more money into those deals that are upside down. So they're probably going to lose them to foreclosure. The banks will take them back. The okay. banks don't have anywhere near as much into them because they only lend 65% of the purchase price. So the bank can go ahead and take it back. And, you know, at 65 cents on the dollar, they could sell it and, and totally recoup. But the, uh, but the investors will be out. Yeah. Out of the game. So there'll be, we think there's going to be a lot of listings coming on. In there's the, at least 2,500 in the inventory yeah. where you see the bridge yeah. loans that are coming up. Like there's 2,500 on there. What kind of properties would you, do you advise people to get into when they're starting out in uh, real estate investing? I think if they're going to be active in real estate investing, like they want to be the one to do it. It's super popular out there for people to be like, I want my first deal to be 100 units. That's fantastic. But the learning curve is steep. So what we advise people is, look, I know you want 100 units, but you're, the bank is never going to lend it to you because you have no idea what you're doing. Um, and that's just that's a very difficult thing to overcome. Start with something small. Start with something that's like 5 to 15 units. Like That's manageable, and you'll learn the business. And it goes from theoretically how to do it to okay, I now I see what it is to actually do this. Just like any business. Once you do it, you're like, oh, okay, these are the nuances. And then once you do that first one, let's say it's 10 units, cool, then the next one, make it a 20 unit. And then you learn a little bit bigger and then you move to a 40 unit. And you take all of that experience and knowledge, just as we do in any business, we apply it to the next one. Then there's some learning curve, you learn it. And then, so you basically stair step. That's, I think that's the biggest thing that we tell people who want to actually do the investing is, do the stair stepping. Um, as far as on the passive side, on the passive side, I would I, I always like when we're working with a new investor, I like I like to put them in a deal where it's we're starting out small, right? Because I want them to feel comfortable and confident in our ability to perform. And I like to start out small in a market that we're already in, so there's not risk. And so when we're bringing in a new investor, we're introducing them right now. We're finding new investors with a 13 unit that we've already locked in. But it's in a market we've been in for five years. And it's an asset. It's like the sixth asset we're going to have in that, maybe even the eighth, that we're going to have in that market. So it's it's proven. It's a proven method. And then I feel confident being able to tell them, hey, Mr. Investor, if you want to invest in this 13 unit, these are all the reasons why I know it's a solid investment just for the asset, but also for the surrounding area and all of the things that we've done to make sure over the years that we protect your investment. And let them date you before you get married, you know, because the idea is let them invest in one of those deals, perform, over deliver. And then at the end of that, do you want to keep investing? Do you want to let that principle roll over and we can just keep going with this? Um, that's that's what I'd like to say. There's a lot of due diligence if you're going to invest passively. Um, 
but you've got to really investigate and do your due diligence on the operator more than the asset. Don't, I'm not saying you don't have to look at the asset, but look at the operator with the fine tooth comb and how long have they been doing it? How did they handle, have they ever lost investor money? And when they did, how did they handle it? What, what did the communication look like? What did they own up to? Did they make an, an attempt to get the money back? Um, what are their character, their character traits, you know? Um, and then also looking at when they're bringing you a deal, what does that market look like? What's the the employment mix in that area? Uh, what's the job growth been doing? What's the population growth been doing? What are the tax trends? And are they going to get blindsided because now all of a sudden the tax assessment's coming in and we weren't expecting that? Um, what Ask questions about insurance. Right now, insurance is killing deals all over the country. And what does that look like? So, and then asking the question of what, what are you going to do to, when you have these uncontrollables, what's your strategy if something goes wrong with one of those uncontrollables? How do you get it back? Or what are your A, B, C, D contingencies? Like ask a lot of questions. Because sometimes those investments are a minimum of a hundred grand. That's a lot of money for somebody who's a professional that's busy and been working every day from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m putting stuff aside, you know, um, or even their 401k, because we can figure out how to get that into an investment opportunity. And uh, it'll be, it'll perform better than the 401k would, but you don't want to risk all of that and gamble unless you've done your homework and start with a small deal and grow into it, grow into the operator. That Those are really good points. So uh, any investment you make, you need to know who the operators are. I, I think that just makes a lot of sense. If you're investing in, in any business, um, the character of the individual behind is is really important. Like you said, sort of like what is the success rate been? What's the experience? What's the uh, look uh, at like the last quarters? You know, the last few quarters, the last few annual annual reports. You know, go back in history and just see like is there a roadmap here? Have they like in in your case like you, you've obviously done this before? You you can show that. Like these are, this is the kind of property we're investing in. These are the other properties we've invested in previously that look like this property. Here's what we're forecasting as far as, um, there's always going to be unexpected scenarios. Um, but this is how we've navigated those unexpected scenarios in the past. And uh, having that experience behind you is, um, is, is, is so important, so critical because it's going to, it makes the difference. And uh, I, I think that, you know, so one of the, the the points of this podcast is how do you build a business profitably? That's sort of the uh, the, the mindset behind it, which is um, I think is is even more important in the economy that we're moving into the next decade. Uh, you know, in the past, people could do sort of these these highly leveraged businesses, which would be like bridge financing or uh, you know some of these other variable rate options. You could run through a line of credit, and so through the business, you're able to deploy a lot of capital for for very inexpensive but um now that's not the strategy moving forward so now we have no like like no debt as a business and the the model moving forward is how do we how do we make sense of that and so the point is is how do you as an investor de-risk which i think is kind of a point you were talking about earlier but at the same time um, make the most of the opportunities that are coming because leverage is an important part of growing a business irregardless. Um, so what are the advantages for somebody other than just the fact that your hands aren't in it? But let's say you have money and you're like, okay, I want to invest in in something like this. What's the advantage of 
working with somebody like yourself versus doing it on their own um, from a risk standpoint? There's a substantial learning curve. So what we always tell people, like if you're going to do it actively, you need to get educated because you have no idea how many ways you can lose money. There's so many, we know. <laughs> Ask us how we know. Um, so that's the thing. If, if someone is like, I want to do it my, myself versus I want to do it passively, you're going to do it yourself. You just have to be prepared that there is a learning curve and it does take time. Where we are at in our business is we've now built it where we have an acquisition specialist and we, we are usually the capital raisers and we have asset managers. We know how to do all of it, but we now have teams of people who it cuts down a lot of the time that we have to spend. But when you are the active investor, especially in the beginning, you are doing all of that. Uh, and that's a great way to learn. If you're going to do it actively, you should. You should learn the business, but it takes time. So if someone is like, I just don't have time, but I want to do it actively, that just they just don't go together. Now it doesn't take us much time because we have all these systems in place. Even if we're doing asset management, we're talking about a handful of hours a month to review all the reports from the property managers, make communications, etc. When we are in acquisition mode, that is when it becomes more time consuming, like like the 13 unit. Okay. You know, we obviously our real estate varies like a lot, <laughs> 13 unit, 96 unit. Now that we're going into due diligence and we're starting to get all those documents in, now we're going to spend more time and go through everything. So it's like the time factor comes in pockets. It doesn't always take a bunch of time, but when you're new, you really need to be able to carve out at least 10 hours a week to give to your business to learn how to do it and then to actually start doing it. Eventually, it's more passive where you're just reviewing some reports. But you have, if you're going to do it actively, you have to be willing to maybe give up Netflix, maybe give up something else you're doing that's not building a business in order to take care of your financial future. If someone's like, I just literally don't have time, then it's really the only path to go would be to do it passively uh, because it does take time and there's a learning curve. So if someone wants to do, who's brand new and they're going to do it actively and they, they haven't been trained, most likely they're, you just, it's so easy to make five and six figure errors. And, and what usually happens is that you know, there's a there's a path to mastering anything. So for every busy professional that's out there right now, you have more than likely mastered what you do. Or if you are an entrepreneur starting a business, you haven't mastered that yet. And there's four stages to mastering. The first one is like, you don't even know what you don't know. It's unconscious incompetence. You don't even realize you're incompetent at it. And then one day you have this aha moment. You're like, oh God, I wish I knew more about that. Now you are consciously incompetent. You're aware that you don't know. <laughs> And that's where most entrepreneurs are like bumping their head against the wall, trying to figure that out. Well, if you're one of those entrepreneurs that's bumping your head on the wall, trying to figure out how to master your business, the last thing you need is to go try and figure out how to master real estate at the same time. Um, ask me how I know. So when you're doing that, once you pass that, you know, I'm consciously aware that I'm incompetent at this. At some point, if you continue to take those reps, you become consciously competent, which is cool, but you still have to think about stuff. You know, you still got to think through the steps and try and figure it out. It doesn't, it's not inherently in you. And it takes a while to get to that level where it's just unconsciously, I'm competent. It's about five years, honestly, of doing it 40 hours a week. So if you're only doing 10 hours a week while still trying to build a business that you still haven't figured out how to do your ads or how to do your marketing or how to do your power messaging or how to actually close a sale, like that in its own self is its own bag of tricks. If you try to add real estate to that, 
it becomes like you really need to learn how to bend time. And I guarantee you, Netflix is not an option. I, I have not done a Netflix and binge or Netflix and chill day since 2010. That's that's how much I don't want to go down that path of my, my time just is not going to serve me there. I have the two businesses that I need to run. So if you're not okay with giving up some of those things and making some sacrifices for at least five years to have comfort for a lifetime, then just lean on somebody who already is doing it, who's already been doing it for five years or more, knows what they're doing, can put your money to work. And then you're bending time that way because it's really the who and not the how at that point. And what I like to see is people who are busy and they have money, but they want to eventually learn how to do it, start as a passive investor. Because what you're going to learn is you're going to learn the nomenclature, you're going to learn the budgets, you're going to learn what it looks like, you're going to see these reports coming to you. You're going to get educated through osmosis. And after a couple of those deals, when you start seeing returns, and maybe after a three, five-year mark, when you finally get some money back, you might think, oh, business is actually doing really well now. And I actually want to take an active role in this because I have the foundation and I understand it. So start up as a, a passive investor first, then get active once your time clears up and you've kind of learned the foundations of it. That's what I say. That's my recommendation. I was just going to say, we, it's funny because when we started our, our other our academy, we had to move from being the active investor for the for the, the two, first two years, we had to basically start investing passively in order to keep investing because we we were on the learning curve of a brand new business. Like we knew we know real estate really well, but we didn't know all of the right. Just like Jen said earlier, we, we didn't even know what Zoom was when we started. Like everything was a learning curve, everything, and we just but we couldn't spend the time to actively invest during that first two year period because we were spending like sixty to eighty hours a week just just trying to launch the business and figure everything out and, you know, bumping our heads on everything. Um, and then after two years, we started getting systems. We started, we hired staff and we were able to then move back into active investing. So we've been in that same situation being the entrepreneur that doesn't have time. So we've been on both sides. And during that time where you don't, we don't have time. Cool. Let's still at least put our money to work passively. And now that we have time, we like to do it. We like to do it actively. Yeah. I think time time is the biggest constraint for most entrepreneurs. Like, um, exactly. I, I invest in other businesses. It's not, uh, I obviously I'm not going to go build those other businesses and some of them are, um, absolutely massive. So it's not, it's just, you, you just, you, you gotta put your money to work. You know, you, you, you generate revenue, you build income and then you, you make sure you put that and then it's, it's out there. So um, so on the passive side, so on the passive investment, what do the returns of the investment look like in, in sense? Is it, uh, is it an interest, um, return? Is it a dividend? Is it, uh, is it something that's locked in for a set term or, or is it something that gets paid out annually? It can be any of those, but let, uh, but I'll give you a couple pieces. It's not when you're investing passively and the money that you get is considered distributions. Interest would come if you, this is, and this is another option. We actually have several people that do this with us. If you loan money on a real estate deal, because you can do that just like a bank can loan, a person can loan and put a mortgage on a property. So like when people do that for us, so they basically, they loan us the money, we buy the property and we're just making them payments just like we would pay the bank. They are receiving interest. They are so a in lender. that sense, they're a passive investor? No, they're not. That wouldn't be considered a passive investor. They'd be considered a lender. So interest is related to if if they're loaning the money. If they're a passive investor, it would be considered distributions. 
that most commonly what we've seen is um, it'll either be monthly or quarterly. And it depends on who the operator is and uh, and the complexity of the deal and their their staffing and stuff like that. But at a minimum, they would do distributions quarterly based on how did the property perform. So, and they might do it monthly. If they're doing monthly, it might be that. The thing is, as an investor, there is no guarantee. There, there is none. That's part of the. There's always a risk as an investment, which is why it's important that you vet the operator, vet the deal. That aside, as long as everything is going to plan, you would be getting monthly distributions based on what they projected. And if they start making more, then your distributions go up. If the property is making less, then the distribution might go down. Uh, so that's what it's considered. It's not a dividend um, and it's not interest. It's it's just a distribution. And some operators will say the distribution is a return of capital and all the profit comes at the end. Um, and some will say this is a distribution and it's the profit. So I, I don't know that it really matters when you're just receiving checks. You're just glad to have you know income coming in off of your money. But so, that, so you that, do you do receive um, so you'll receive a check based on the like a certain amount. Is, and is that a variable amount? Like how does that work? Uh, it depends. So on one of our so I'll, I'll talk on the passive side for a second, and then I'll talk on the active side. On the passive side, one of the deals that we are passively invested in. When we got into that deal, and that was during that first two, two year period uh, of our other business, it was a it was called a seven percent preferred return. So what that meant is, no matter what, the investors that put all the money into the deal, we were one of them, would get a seven percent cash on cash return before the operators got anything. So it's like they would have to perform at a certain level before they would get paid. And so with that one, we just get a monthly check. It's the same check. It's always based on the seven percent. When the property sells, we'll get like more of a windfall of cash. On our active side, when we're doing distributions, we do we do things more quarterly because it's just from a management standpoint, that's easiest for us. And we do it, we do it based on performance. So how much money do we make in the quarter? And if it's it might be nine percent, it might be seven percent, whatever it is, we distribute all of that to our investors. So it could be done different ways. And that passive investment is going into a specific project. There's <laughs> generally, yes. Uh, the reason we're laughing is just there's something called a uh, fund of funds. Yeah, a fund of funds. And uh, like sometimes we haven't, this is not an area that we have uh, jumped into, but there are some investors. They're usually, they've usually been doing it a pretty long time, syndicating a long time where they have lots and lots and lots of investors that already have invested with them and they trust them. It takes, it takes a long time to get to that point. So they will basically say, Hey guys, we're going to make a fund and we're going to go get properties that are, and they'll give some things like generally 200 to 300 units, stabilize or value add. This is the general thing we're going to do. So give us your money. We'll put it in the fund and then then we'll go buy real estate. So some people do that. It's it's harder to raise money for that because most people want to be able to see, well, what is what are you buying? Like I would never, I would never invest my money in something like that because I'm I'm so active. I want to know exactly what we're buying, what we're buying into, even if I'm not operating. Uh, but there are there are both. But if someone was just putting their money into something and they don't know because it's just going to go be that's called a fund. Uh, otherwise, it's it would be a syndication uh, into a property, a, a single property, and you have a, an ownership piece of of that property. Is there a forecast as to when that property will then be sold, or is that something that's dependent on the market? Oh yeah, there's always so it's, uh, it's we call that the exit strategy. It's like what beginning with the end in mind. Every investor, when you're doing multifamily, that's that's the whole game. Begin with the end in mind. What is the opportunity? 
most commonly we see deals that people will say three to five years will be the exit, meaning they'll be selling or refinancing and getting the cash back to the investors. Um, now that things have changed with interest rates, I would never consider doing something that's only three years. Like I feel like we need we need more time. We need more length of time, uh, whether we're doing it passively or actively. So we will not do anything or look at anything that's less than five years. Five to seven is more uh, the more the range that we look at. But when someone's going to invest something passively, the person they're investing with has a whole business plan that they show them. Like this is what the plan is. We're going to hold it for. Uh, like with the 13 unit, we're going to hold it for at least seven years because that's we have seller financing for seven years. With the 96 unit, the business plan was to hold it for five years. And at the end of five years, based on what the numbers are, it looks like it'll be worth 13 and a half million, but we only bought it for nine and a half million. So it's a $4 million profit, but you can't realize that profit until you sell. So that's why at the end of five years, the plan is to sell, return all the capital to all of our investors and and, and then the profit. And then they would have made, I mean, if the numbers were exactly as predicted, it's, it's always some version of that. They would have made, you know, uh, 190% of their investment. So they would put in 100,000 and get 190,000 back over the course of the five years in that particular example. Hmm. Now, uh, seven years is not a long time. It goes by so fast. And yeah, and uh you know, for for somebody who's just starting out investment, uh, investing maybe it feels longer than it is, but it's really short. For most investments, if you if you invest in say a tech company, um, ten years would be a short time, like a very very short time. And uh, <laughs> nine of the businesses that you invest in uh, historically aren't aren't going to make it, and that's after you're getting to an A round or B round or C round financing. So it's yeah, so seven years is really good, and it's a very secure investment. I think uh, if you're you're investing in property, um, it it just makes a lot of sense. So, what are some like when you're looking at a at, at buying a place? You're you're saying you're looking at the upside, and there's obviously going to have a market uh, effect. So you're hoping that the price of property is going to increase um, over those seven years. But as you know, the market goes up and down, and you know that side is sort of out of our control and. Um, so are you looking for a place that is distressed? Are you looking for a place that's not distressed, but maybe needs a little bit of um, paint and just some some work? Or are you looking for a place that is really good to go and is going to require as little investment on the um, you know improvement side as possible? I want to address one thing, and then I, then I think Jen can address the, the other. So in multifamily, over five units, things are not valued the same way as we are all accustomed to when we are in real estate investing. You know, right now it's the value of your property is based on comparable sales, right? So whatever other properties sold for, that's what yours will be worth. That's the most it can be worth. In multifamily over five units, the value of the property is based on the net income of the property. So it's it's not, I don't want to say it doesn't matter what the market is doing, but it's not, it's not the same with single family homes. It's not based on being in a hot market or or something like that, it's how can you improve the operations and improve the income of the property? Because that is where you'll have massive increases in value. So, so how do you do that? So are you are you looking for uh, markets where the income of the individuals are rising? Are you looking for markets where, uh, because I'm assuming you're going to be doing that by, um, you know, by bringing in new people at a higher uh, value rent. So how do you attract that? I mean, that's a good question. 
Um, you kind of already answered exactly what I was going to say. Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, <clears throat> so the markets that we look for, we are looking for that they have a good mix of employment and the, the job growth is, it's either steady or upwards. And then same thing with the population growth. So that it's a sound, fundamentally sound market in terms of the financials, because you're trying to attract the people that are going to pay rent. You got to make sure the jobs are there, right? So the way that we increase the NOI, the net operating income, which is basically the revenue of the property is, yes, we're going to go in and to answer your question, your first question, what kind of properties are they distressed or are they not? We go for what's in between. So we're not going for anything that, you know, we have to replace the, the windows or the roof or the flooring. We're literally looking for something that's already cash flowing on day one. And there's opportunities to make tweaks where we can increase the revenue that's coming in. And if there's an opportunity where we can, if, if it's below market rent in the area, which has been a, a big prevalent thing these days, is that properties are below market rent because the, the landlords or the people that had it before, they weren't really making the incremental increases to keep up the cost of inflation, the cost of living or or anything. And, and we're just, we're masters at making that little, we call it a nuisance increase. It's like, oh, really? 25, my rent's going up 25 bucks. Well, they're not going to move for $25 a month. But if we don't make that increase, then we're basically inflation is going to take its its course on us, and we're going to lose the opportunity to actually continue to stay the pace. So we look for those properties where the market rent is it's not being met, or there's opportunity where, for example, the, the 13 unit that we're looking at right now, there's storage facilities there, and there's an opportunity for we can implement more storage facilities and rent those out. So you can charge rent for that, and then we look at opportunities for pet rent. We look at opportunities where. There might be, you know, trash valet. At the 96 unit, we found a, a cable company who can come in and install fiber optics, and we can charge a premium for the cable for that, but we're going to have it for the entire building. And then there's like a $15 spread on that for us. Well, $15 times 100 doors, it might not seem like it's a lot, but because the property is valued based on the income coming in, for every little dollar a month that you get in, it starts to gain value quickly. So a lot of a lot of folks have that that misperception thinking that, oh, if I get into this rental property game, then I'm just uh, subject to the circumstances of what's going on in the market. And, and that's true for single family homes and possibly two to four unit properties. But for, for multifamily, which is five units and above, you actually have a lot more control than you perceive. Um, there's uncontrollables like insurance, taxes going up, but, but you can plan for those. And then really it's about increasing the top line while minimizing expenses. And that's where you make the biggest change in the property value. That's so you're in more control than you think. Okay. And so it's, so multifamily is a lot more like uh, commercial and it is commercial. Okay. So it, it is commercial. It is commercial. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in our, so my, my city, the where I live in, um, land values have, have risen quite like dramatically over the last few years. I mean, like most markets. Um, but we've had this problem where the build zone that the city has has actually shrunken in the last couple of years, uh, where we have, a, we have a significant challenge on the amount of land. And so um, all the, the land in the downtown area has, well, not all of it, but certain sections have all been slated to 20-story to 40-story high-rises as the minimum. And so at what point, do you look at a property and see the value of the property? Uh, so at what point does the land value exceed the value of the, um, of the unit? And 
So if you have somebody coming to buy, like an investor, at what point are they going to look at a property and say, actually, you know what, I'm going to buy this, but I'm actually going to tear it down and build up? Um, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's not really our area of business, yeah. but I did at one point, I was the CFO for a property management company where the owner, he was he, he was like five feet tall. This little, he's 82 years old and just sharp, sharp as a tack, but this tiny little guy, he had in um, San Diego, he had this high rise building. And so, and so he was the owner of the company and I was his chief financial officer. And he, before I, before I started working for him across the street from his high rise in downtown San Diego, there was a, a small structure and uh, it wasn't a structure. It was a parking lot. It was just, it was a parking lot. It was paid parking. So it was a premium because in that area, there wasn't much parking. So that little piece of land made a lot of money. So he had to pay a lot of money to acquire it. He acquired it and put a 40 story building on there. So that isn't, that's not an area where um, we focus. It's, it's, a new build takes so long. It's just not our, it's not our bread and butter. So I don't I didn't really know exactly the answer to that question. Yeah. I don't either. I feel like I need to close I this. So too. Apparently they're apparently they're doing yard work outside today. Sorry, Jonathan. No, so no worries. It's been nice in Florida for once. It's so hot and it's been like cool the last couple of days. We got our windows open, but you close the blinds for the light and forgot there could be noise outside. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, no, no problem. I'm not getting it on my end. Hopefully, so anybody listening, okay. um, I'll uh, I'll mention this as well at the beginning. Um, but the uh, so. We, we had some technical issues before, so normally we're recording this over Riverside. So this is recorded over Zoom. So if the audio sounds a little bit today different, uh, that's the reason why. Um, but that's that's an interesting segue. Uh, we can talk a little bit about, uh, maybe we, we, we laughed about it a little bit earlier, but resilience. Um, you know, as you've been building this business uh, in your journey, uh, business doesn't always go straight up and to the right any business. It doesn't matter if you're Amazon, it doesn't matter if you're uh, Walmart, if you zoom in on any one of their days, they're going to have good days, bad days, tough days, situations they weren't expecting. Um, so for yourselves, what, what have been some of the, uh, the things that have surprised you as you've been building this business? How hard it is. <laughs> it's, it is a it's difficult, right? Like, as if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. But um, really trying to figure out, reaching into your soul and, and kind of figuring out, like, why am I doing this? Why did I even get started doing this? Um, I find myself asking that at least twice a month. Um, <laughs> at least <laughs> and, you know, it's just it, it, 80% of being an entrepreneur is, is your mindset, you know, and the, the rest of the 20% is the mechanics. And it's, it's, you really have to condition your mind. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs are action takers, high achievers. I personally have the achievers curse where as soon as I achieve the goal, I'm not, I'm only happy celebrating for like eight seconds. And then it's like, why didn't I get there faster? And I you know if, if that's you, then you're welcome. <laughs> I just feel like there, there's a lot of opportunity for myself when, when that's happening to kind of just check in and figure out how. But how how is it really going? You know what what have I actually done in terms of progress? So I think what what I've learned the most and what's been most shocking to me is that just watching myself and setting a goal, crushing it, and then just dismissing it as if it didn't just take everything inside of me to accomplish it, and um, not giving myself enough grace along the way because it's not easy at all, but it's worth it. So 
for me, it's it's the 80% of the mindset and thinking that I was going to be tougher than I actually am. And then not comparing myself to competitors or other people that seem to have it together, but comparing myself today to yesterday. And did I at least do better today than I did yesterday personally? And um, really focusing on the gains versus what's missing. Um, to me, it's it's difficult because I just, as soon as I hit a goal, I, I want more. I, I want more reach. I want more impact. I want more. And it, it can become insatiable and, and consuming. So I, I think that for me, that, that was the most shocking thing is that uh, you know, I shocked myself in terms of what I can accomplish if I take the time to recognize it. Yes. I think that's really good advice. Now, um, really wise. Was there a situation where that sort of caught you by, or not caught you by surprise, but just sort of made you aware of the fact that, okay, I need to take a minute here and actually celebrate these wins? Oh, all the time, all the time. There's a couple that that uh, come to mind, and uh, in 2009, 18 or 19, I can't. It was a few years ago. When all of a sudden, we were doing some flips, and uh, I was making spaghetti in the kitchen, and the lender called, and I answered the phone, and he was like, "Hey." You change the scope of work on one of your properties because we decided to list it. You know, it was um, we just decided like we're not going to actually flip that one. We're just going to list it and get, give it to another investor and start doing buy and hold. Our contractor was behind. Yeah. So, so the uh, the lender called and said, you know, you change the scope of work. You're not doing this anymore. So you know, you owe me the balance of the loan in seven days. Um, and I didn't personally have 180 grand sitting there in that moment. So I was like, wait, what? And I put the spoon down and you. This must be a joke. Um, but you know what? I I talked to this lender and, hey, actually, there's somebody who's making an offer on it. So are you saying that I can't sell it? Yeah, I have an offer on it. And as I'm talking to the lender, you have 30 days then. If you have that offer, it's got to close within 30 days. So you just bought yourself 30 days. Congratulations. And if at the end of that 30 days, you don't have that person closing on that property, you owe us that balance or it's going into foreclosure. Well, at the time, that would have really just brought a small portfolio that was worth a couple million dollars to its knees. And then it's going to affect our, our credit and our ability to get lending in the future. So, you know, I'm, I'm low key hyperventilating. And at the time our kids were young and four of them running around and you know, they smell like parks and recreation. So that didn't help. And I'm like, I feel like I'm going to pass out because what, what the hell am I going to do? And, you know, we just had this epiphany because it's all in the questions that we ask ourselves when, when we're in those moments. And usually the question might come in like, why is this happening? Or why me? Or why today? And those why questions just tend to make you answer yourself and justify why versus actually moving you towards a resourceful answer. So I changed the question to what else can we do? What can we do to actually get an offer on this property? Um, and what what can we help we leverage other aspects of our other real estate to possibly do a wraparound or something? How can we get creative? And so by the time Stacey and, you know, and I talked after dinner um, because she was on a trip that, that she was training somebody on how to buy apartments, go figure. And uh, I was like, what, what can we do? So she had reached out to lenders. We came up with the ABC contingency on what we were going to do. And we closed. We literally went out and found a wraparound mortgage portfolio loan that put all these properties in and leveraged equity from others to offset that cost. We had to bring $26,000 to the table to close on that loan, which was like, ah. Oh, and the heart 
heart-wrenching moment was when we had to give him 10 grand just to apply for the loan. Yeah. That felt a little like, oh God, that's not cool. That was scary. But at the same time, recognizing I'm on I'm on death ground right now. There's really no way to go. I, I've got to do something. I have to take action. And it's in those moments of decision and being decisive that once you make that decision and you let that $10,000 go, now you really got to make things happen, right? So at the end of that entire process, we ended up closing on the loan, saving the property, figuring it out. We sold that property. We got everything figured out. And we celebrated for all the four minutes. Yeah. <laughs> four minutes. So and then it was that. like on to the next thing. And it wasn't until a year later when we turned around and said, you know what? That was actually pretty incredible. That was pretty remarkable that we were able to do that. And ironically, it was when we were facing a different situation in a different business where you know things weren't working out and it looked like we were going to have to make another Hail Mary decision. And so we did. And we ended up shelling out 150 grand that time. So talk about 10xing, 10xing the faith um, <laughs> to fix that problem. But what we have found is that every time we do that and we go all in on something with absolute certainty, like we're unstoppable at that point. And, and so what we've, we've had about three or four of those moments over the past eight years. And what we have identified is that when we do those things, when we go all in and we play hard like that and we put everything into it and the results come back, we now celebrate when we're 90% to that and plan the next goal before we actually hit it um, because it keeps us in momentum, but it also makes us celebrate. So that's, I, I think that's the biggest piece is like, if you, you just keep going, you're going to burn out. And if you don't recognize the skills that got you out of those jams and how resourceful you actually were, it, you can, you can give up and that's not for us. So yeah, I find that most people in, I think it's probably all <laughs> most investor, real estate investors, and even the people that we've trained over the time, there's a certain personality type and it is, it is, it's when Jen said the overachievers curse, it's like everybody is that overachiever. It's just a personality trait. It seems of real estate investors, uh, meaning you're going for it, going for it, going for it, which means that recognizing the game is a pervasive issue with almost all investors because you're just like, just like Jen said, you're just on to the next thing. And, you know, it was, what was it? Lisa was talking to one of our events five years ago or so. And she was like, look at what happened five. What was, what was the, what was going on 10 years ago compared to what's going on now? What was going on five years ago compared to what's going on now? And everybody was like, and it was with, you know, a whole bunch of people and everyone was like, whoa, oh my God, I've come so far. But everybody's sitting there feeling like, I haven't done enough. I haven't done enough. I'm behind. But when you look at what have you done in the last five years and 10 years, you've accomplished so much. I'm sure this is true for every business owner of every kind of business. But we we tend to have this, just over, we have to overachieve and, um, and not recognize when we've done something. So it's not easy. We sometimes have to remind each other because <laughs> we... We're both like that. And we sometimes have to remind our, you know, our colleagues and, and our students, you have to celebrate because you've come a long way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that's, it's really like, it's, it's profound. And, and I think once you walked through that journey and you, and you, you've kind of gone, you, you realize just how valuable this really is. It's that, yeah, I, I can, re I can relate to that in a huge way. So, Thank you so much for sharing that. And I feel like this is the perfect time to really um, close. But so if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking, how can I connect with you? Where can they find you? 
Well, and Facebook, we have a, a Facebook group called Apartment Investing with Jen and Stacy. So you can just search for us, Jen Conkey and Stacy Conkey without an E. S-T-A-C-Y. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Apartment yes. Investing with Jenna Stacy. join us in the Facebook group. We, we drop a lot of training and a lot of knowledge out there and just really foster a community. There's about 27,000 people in there. Um, it's fun. So that's the best place to find us. Awesome. And you and you have a book? We do. We do. We have it's right here. Look at that. Oh. <laughs> right here. You can get it on Amazon. It's, it's a multifamily freedom hacking and it's your playbook to long-term cash flow from rental property. It's on Amazon. Oh, I love that. That's great. So last question uh, to both of you uh, as we uh, close. If you were to meet yourself 20 years ago, what advice would you give yourself then? Go straight into apartments. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Go straight into apartments. And I think um, back then for myself, I liked my job so much though. And at the same time, I took a long time to actually leave. It's like 12 year period. So I think that if I would have got into apartments sooner, knowing now that they're assessed differently, they're valued differently, and there's quicker path to wealth than going on single family homes and, and duplexes, triplexes and quads. I, I think that that's probably what I would have done. I think for me, if I was look, talking to my 20 year ago self, I would say, don't be, because I have, for a long time, I was very afraid of failing. So I, there would be a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things I wouldn't go for because, oh, but what if I fail? And you know, the thing that we teach our kids now is uh, going and trying things and failing is the absolute best thing you can do. Do it as early as possible because that is where you learn. And so I think I would have told myself back then, like, don't be afraid of failure. Just it, the thing is, it's not failure. Like, what meaning are you assigning to it? You can assign the meaning failure. You're a total loser. You shouldn't even exist. Or you can assign the meaning of I just learned something. And, you know, as we've grown our businesses, we continue to ascend in our business because we try things and some things work and that's information and some things do not work. And that's also information and that continues to pile on and we continue to move up. So I think that's the thing I'd say is don't be, don't be afraid of failure. Go for it. And when things don't work, it's not, it's not failure. It's what do you call it? It's learning. It's just, yeah, it's learning. It's not failure. It's learning. And that's like, yeah, feedback. That's what it was. I'm like, it was another F word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not failure. It's feedback. <laughs> and feedback is how you grow. And ultimately, that's what you have as an entrepreneur. That's what it's all about. It's constant yeah. growth, constant growth. Um, so that's what I'd say. Don't be don't be afraid to take some chances. Don't be, a, you know, mitigated risks, but don't be afraid to go for it because you're worth it and you're going to learn along the way. And it might not be easy, but anything worth having or doing isn't usually easy. Like, yeah. This, this has been great. I um, This is a topic I've been inter interested in for a long time. I just know very little about. And so hopefully my questions are going to help someone else who's been kind of thinking about the same thing. Like, hey, this is something I'd like to get into and, you know, don't know much about. But uh, definitely listening to this for me, passive investing is the way to go. And I have a friend um, named Rob. He, he flies his plane around everywhere and he's a real estate investor. And I'm like, this just looks like a great life. <laughs> <laughs> So it's it definitely seems like something that can uh it it's it's yeah it's super cool. So I, I just want to say thank you so much. I appreciate your time and uh yeah you both came on and this has been great. And we had a few technical hurdles in the beginning, but uh you know it's just it's that it's the muscle, right? It's like you 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 get so used to using it, you don't even think about it anymore. And uh, yeah, so 
So again, thank you so much and uh, appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan.